morning, beloved. Uh, it's good to gather together to worship our God and King. Um, today, we're going to be talking about a judge in the Bible. And so if you know anything about a judge, they typically have some tools. One of those tools being a gavel. Um, you may laugh at my gavel, but I think it's pretty awesome. Uh, but kids, do you know what a judge uses a gavel for? Okay, shout it out. Shout it out if you know. I like the enthusiasm. Okay, shout it out. Elena thinks, she, oh, that is Elena. There's some lights. That's not my daughter. Hello. <laughs> Yes, very good. It gets attention. So if the room gets out of order, you can call it to attention, but also to say, like, this is final. Like, it's done. I have passed the sentence. And so judges know how to make things happen. They declare things. They get people's attention. They make it happen. And so I need a couple kids who know how to make things happen. So you're going to come up on stage, so you need to be comfortable with that, and your parents coming with you. So I need some volunteers, kids. All right, Jude, come on up and bring Dad with you. Um, another kid. Another kid, another kid. All right, uh, Soph, you want to bring your dad up? Come on up. All right, so you're going to come up here. All right, so go ahead and come on to the back side of this, and um, this will be your gavel. All right. All right, and you guys go ahead over there. Come right behind here. And so what's going to happen is it's going to be a contest. Um, because I know how hard it would be to sit in a sermon too. We've got some fidget toy things. Um, so these are the prizes, but um, you're in a race. You want to knock all of your pegs with your gavel down first. Uh, but here's the thing, dad behind you is gonna blindfold you. So don't hit your hand, please don't hit your hands. So keep the other hand clear. Um, but it's a race. You wanna be the first one to hit all of your pegs down as far as they will go. But dad's covering your eyes, okay? So dads, go ahead and cover their eyes. All right, go ahead, go ahead. Ooh, strategy, she had it sideways. Oh, there we go, all right. Nicely done, nicely done. You guys both did a wonderful job. So you got first place, you wanna take your pick? All right, very good. Thank you guys for playing. You guys are really good at making things happen. Thank you very much. <laughs> they were really good at that, and I didn't plan this transition, so... I'll throw these over there. <laughs> Judges make things happen, and they have tools like a gavel, and that will actually be pretty instrumental in today's um, topic because we're going to be in the book of Judges. If you would like to find the book of Judges, we'll be in chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. This is closer to the start of Scripture. We're going to be in the Old Testament this summer. So if you would like to turn to the book of Judges chapter 4, we're going to be picking up the very start of that. So, judges make things happen. In your life, who do you ultimately look to to make things happen? Who is it that you know, it's like, there's something that needs to get done, this is the person I can count on. They're going to faithfully get it done, I can trust them, I can count on them, they're going to make things happen. Who's that person in your life? Who's the person that you just know? If you can't trust anyone else, you know you can trust this person. They're not going to let you down. That's what we want to look at today. That's kind of the tension we want to bring to this time together as we explore what scripture is telling us today, what God himself is telling us in this passage. So Judges chapter four, um, we're going to be looking at this and to give you some context because it's always, always, always important to know the context of what you're reading because you can take this book that is the very words of God himself 
And if you don't understand the context of what you're reading, you can make this say something totally different than what he intended for you to think it says. So we always have to be careful to know, like, what is the context in which we're reading this? And so the book of Judges is a historical narrative. It's telling us a story about something that actually happened in the past. And so as we're reading this, I want you to know a little bit about the book. It's called Judges because some of the key characters in this book are judges. They actually decide and settle disputes. And so they would have the gavel, so to speak, like they would have the authority to bring resolution to something, make things happen. And so these judges come in as appointed leaders. But if you're familiar with the history of God's people, the Israelites, you know, they had King David, King Solomon, these famous kings. There was a time before they had kings. And this is during that time. They did not yet have a king to rule over the nation. And so God would send these judges to help to settle things and to lead the people. And so in the book of Judges, you have judges. These are leaders that God would anoint and appoint as leaders prior to the kings. But throughout this whole book, it's a really, really depressing dark time because there's this repeated cycle, this downward repeating spiraling failure of the Israelites. In fact, there's a repeated phrase throughout this book that captures kind of the sum total of what the whole book is capturing. And it says this, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Does that sound a little bit like today? Follow your heart. Be true to you. That in our culture, we have elevated the self, our individuality, to be above everything else. That if it's true for you, then it must be true. And who is anyone else to say it's not true? And so you have this idea of like, you just do what you think is right. And it always, just like in the book of Judges and just like we're watching today, as mental illness and just all of the insanity that we see play out in the news every single day just continues to worsen. The more and more we think, oh, it's me, it's me. I do what I think is right. And I won't listen to any kind of higher authority or anything like that. And so that's what is happening here. They're in this spiral and it's a cycle. It's a cycle. And so if we start in chapter four, read the first verse with me. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. They did again. That idea of they did again is pointing to that cycle that I'm talking about. That the Israelites are stuck in this cycle that we see throughout the book of Judges. They again did what was evil, points to this repeating cycle. And this is the cycle. It starts with sin. It starts with the fact that Israel has been brought into the promised land. They have been promised this land and as they come in, they've been told by God, you're gonna drive out the inhabitants. None of them should stay. So they're in this land called Canaan. And all the Canaanites are to be put to death or driven out of the land. God tells them, don't allow them to stay. Because if they stay, they're going to corrupt you. They're going to influence you. They're gonna lead you into worshiping false gods. They're gonna get you in trouble. And you know, Joshua leads the Israelites in. Moses has failed, and so he's not allowed to enter. And so Joshua, the successor, leads the Israelites, and you have 12 tribes, and they have allotted lands, and they're going through, and they're conquering. But along the way, at different points, they fail to truly conquer, or fail to drive out the inhabitants. And so now, they're living in a land that they've been promised, but they didn't hold up their end. They've allowed some people to stay who believe in false gods. And what's happening in the cycle as they sin is they're allowing those others to influence them and lead them the wrong direction. And so they're falling into false worship. They're doing things they know they should not be doing. They're sinning. They're rebelling against God. Kids, you know what sin is? 
It's missing the mark. God has a mark. There's a standard that he says, you're to do this, and sin is failure to meet that mark. But it's not just our actions, it's actually the posture of our hearts. It's actually inside of us. It's like a sickness that we've inherited. And so we continue to bend towards evil, to fall into sin, every one of us. Like, you know your parents didn't have to teach you how to lie or to steal? You know how that is? Parents, we know that too. Adults, we know that too. It's just in us. This, this selfishness, this rebellion against the holy God. And so Israel falls into this sin pattern. They fall into idolatry and other things. And because of that, oppression comes. That in our sin, we suffer. The world is broken because of our sin. There is natural evil and there is evil that we inflict on others because of our sin. That we are responsible for this. There is an oppression. There is hurt. There is pain. There is injustice. All of these bad things are a result of our sin. And so the cycle starts with sin and then it leads to oppression. And then as the people of God realize how much they're hurting and why they're hurting, that they have to own it, then they repent or they turn from their sin and they cry out to God. And as they cry out to God, he hears them and he will raise up a deliverer. He will raise up a judge. This is a leader who will come and help lead them out of this oppression and bring them to the final part, peace. And so the cycle, sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance, peace. And then they started again as they turned from God. And so over and over, sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance, peace. Sin, oppression, repentance, deliverance, peace. And you continue that. And so here we are in the cycle again. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so now look at verse two. So the Lord sold them to King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth of the nations. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord because Jabin had 900 iron chariots and he harshly oppressed them 20 years. Do you see the cycle playing out? They have sinned. They again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so now in their sin comes oppression. So their oppression comes. There's 900 chariots. This guy Sisera is leading this army of Jabin who's the king in this region. And so he's got 900 chariots. The Israelites had no such military mind or power. They did not have chariots. And so this is kind of like, hey, if you're running around on a tricycle and somebody comes with a tank, who's gonna stand up? This isn't good. Like they're clearly the dominant military power. They're a lot stronger than the Israelites. And so the Israelites would be scared and they would have to do what they said. We got 900 chariots and this lasts for 20 years. For 20 years, they're in this oppression. And now watch what happens. Verse three. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. They repent. They realize that they've messed up and so they cry out to God. They turn to God. This is repentance. So in that, they're crying out to the Lord and then look at verse four. Deborah, a prophetess and the wife of Lapidoth, that's an awesome name by the way, was judging Israel at the time. She would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim and the Israelites went up to her to settle disputes. So here it is. Here comes deliverance. God raises up a leader, someone to deliver them, someone to rescue. This is a judge. Remember that position? This is someone who can make things happen, who's gonna settle disputes, who's supposed to bring in peace. And so here it is, and it's Deborah, which is so interesting that it's a woman. It's a female in a time that's very much patriarchal, that men had power, not women. And yet here is a judge who is a woman, 
and she would sit under a palm tree that's been named after her, the palm tree of Deborah. And people would come to her to settle disputes, which she's respected. And she's a prophetess, meaning she can be a spokesperson for God. God would speak through her to reveal things to people. And so it's not like she's going out trying to just usurp power and say like, you better listen and follow me. But instead, because she actually is in a place of humility, people are coming to her and respecting her and looking to her for leadership, looking for her as a judge to help bring about this deliverance that they need so badly. So verse six, she summoned Barak, son of Abanoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali and said to him, hasn't the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you Go, deploy the troops on Mount Tabor and with you 10,000 men from Naphtalites and the Zebulonites. Then I will lure Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, his chariots and his infantry at the weighty Kishon to fight against you and I will hand him over to you. Wow. <laughs> she speaks with the authority of, hey, God has said this. And so speaking with that kind of authority, she gives instructions to Barak and he's supposed to get this Israeli army together from two of the tribes. Go get 10,000 men together. God said to do this. You're gonna fight and God's gonna bring about a victory at this weighty. You know what a weighty is? It's a fun word too, right? A weighty is basically a dry stream that in this arid land, um, it would rain and there would be this flash flood and it would create this temporary river and that's a weighty. And then it would dry up and there would just be this dry riverbed. And so God is speaking through Deborah saying, hey, go get 10,000 Israelites. Go to Mount Tabor. I'm going to bring them to the weighty here and I'm going to deliver you. I will, I'll destroy them for you. And so this is what he's been called to do. Now look at verse eight. Barak said to her, Barak is one of the leaders, apparently a military leader in Israel, but this is what he says. He said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. I will gladly go with you, she said, but you will receive no honor on the road you're about to take because the Lord will sell Sisera to a woman. So Deborah got up and went back with Barak to Kadesh. Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. 10,000 men followed him and Deborah also went with him. So Barak is like, okay, I hear the instructions. I'm gonna get 10,000 guys. God's gonna help us out. This sounds good, but here's the thing. Deborah, I know you're a prophetess. I know you're the judge here. Like we all respect you. I'm not going unless you go. And she says, okay, I'll gladly go with you. But just know this this road you're wanting to go down, requiring me to come, you'll get no honor for defeating the enemy. Instead, a woman will get that honor. Which is a big deal, especially in that culture, that the man is supposed to be the warrior. He's supposed to be the one to conquer the enemy. And she's telling him, actually, you won't get that honor. A woman will get the honor of defeating the enemy here. But she's gladly going to go. And so, they have their instructions. He gets the army together. And now look at verse 11, what happens. Now Heber the Kenite had moved away from the Kenites, the sons of Habab and Moses' father-in-law, and pitched his tent beside the oak tree of Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Like, hold up. <laughs> have you ever been watching a movie or reading a book? You're in some kind of a story and like you know the characters. Like it's this character and this character and they're trying to do this and then you get part of the way into the story and all of a sudden out of nowhere, it's like, well, there's this other character and there's this other thing. Like there's a tent, by the way. This guy pitched a tent. You're like, well, where did that come from? What do you think, kids? Why would they all of a sudden include this additional character and this other thing that seems to be nothing about the story? Because it's gonna be part of the story, right? 
And so you know, as a new character is introduced into the story, this is probably gonna be pretty significant, even if it's a little confusing right now. So we gotta remember, now there's a tent. Do you see our tent? Isn't that awesome? Watermelons, summertime. So there's a tent suddenly in the story. Why is there a tent? This is, this is strange. But now we continue on verse 12. It was reported to Sisera, remember that's the bad guy, that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up Mount Tabor. Sisera summoned all his 900 iron chariots, so his entire fleet, his entire military power. He's got it all together, like we're going to destroy the Israelites. He brings everything he's got. And all the troops were with him from Harosheth of the nations to the weighty Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has handed Sisera over to you. Hasn't the Lord gone before you? So Barak came down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. The Lord threw Sisera, all his charioteers, and all his army into a panic before Barak's assault. Sisera left his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth of the nations, and the whole army of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a single man was left. Did you hear that? Israel has won. The enemy has been defeated. 900 chariots, all of their troops, the charioteers, all of their best, the best of the Canaanites stood against to try to destroy the Israelites and they were destroyed. How were they destroyed? Who gets all the credit for this? God, clearly. Clearly, it is God who won the victory. God orchestrates this. God brings it about. And in fact, if we go to the next chapter, we learn a little bit more about how this played out because there's a song that Deborah and, and her friend Barak wrote. And in the song, we learn details that apparently at this way, do you remember what a way is? That it's a dry riverbed. But when there would be a flood, it seems that God would use the weather and bring about this torrential downpour. And all these chariots, you imagine they're in this dry riverbed where it's all just like dusty, but then suddenly it's flooding and now you have horses freaking out. There's lightning, all this stuff. And what happens to a chariot made of iron when it's in mud? It gets stuck. And so they're useless now. Their best defense, their best offense is useless now. It's stuck in the mud. And the Israelites come in after God has already won the victory and just clean house. Not a single man is left. Do you like war stories? Like this is a war story. And the good guys win. God does this for them. So now watch what happens. Verse 17. Meanwhile, Sisera, the bad guy who led this army, had fled on foot to the tent of Jael. <gasps> There's that tent again. The wife of Heber the Kenite. Because there was a peace between King Jabin of Hazor and the family of Heber the Kenites. And so, chalk with me here, okay? Here's what happens. Remember that tent that came out of nowhere. The wife is still there. She's the wife of someone who has a treaty. So there's essentially a covenant between Sisera and Jabin's army and this person, this Heber, who's here. And so he thinks, okay, I'm not staying with the stuck chariots. I'm getting out of here. Clearly my side's losing. And so like a coward, he runs. Sisera runs away from the battle. He leaves all of his men behind to die. He runs away. He's just fleeing for his life. And he comes up to this tent. And he's like, oh, we have peace with you. Thank goodness, I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna be safe. I'm so tired from running. He's exhausted, he's thirsty and all this stuff. So he comes to this and we're gonna step away from this and now this is just Kevin's paraphrase because we've got little ears in the room. So here's what happens. They come to this tent. The wife comes out, sees him, is like, oh, Sisera. And he's like, oh, I'm so glad to see you. 
I'm exhausted. I've been running. Army's destroyed. We have peace. You know, everything's good in the up and up. So let me come in. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Calm down. Don't be afraid. Come right in. Come right in. So she welcomes him into the tent. She's sweet-talking him. She's calming him down. She brings him in, covers him up with a blanket. It's apparently getting chilly. And she's like, hey, man, just relax. Just relax. And he's like, I'm so thirsty. She's like, here, have some, have some milk. He asked for water. She gives him milk. Do you remember what your parents gave you to go to bed at night when you were really young? Milk, because it's heavy. And so this guy is already tired. He's been running. He's so hungry, so thirsty. He asked for water. She covers him up with a blanket, gets him nice and cuddly, gives him some milk. Ah, oh, sleepy time. And he's like, I'm, I'm just tired. I'm going to take a quick nap. Could you go stand outside the tent? And if anybody comes here, just be like, nope, no guys here. Nobody here. Nothing to see here. And she's like, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, I'll do that. Just shh, 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 shh. Go to sleep. Go to sleep. And he goes to sleep. This guy's asleep. You know what she does? Yeah. If you know the story, don't scream it out because some kids might not know it. <laughs> she takes the tent stake and a hammer. He's asleep inside the tent. She's got to defeat the enemy. So she defeats the enemy. And let's just say the tent's already staked, okay? You tracking with me? <laughs> she has dealt with the enemy. This is wild. <laughs> like this woman just literally took matters into her own hand has staked the problem to the ground. And then, guess who comes? Barak. Barak comes. He's just destroyed the army. He's chasing after Sisera. He comes up to the tent. And he's like, ah, oh, we've been looking everywhere for Sisera. And she's like, hey, you know what? The guy you're looking for? Check this out. <laughs> he comes in. He opens the tent flap. Like, oh, oh, supposed to be me. But you got to remember what Deborah had already told him. You'll get no honor on the road you're about to take. Instead, Sisera will be sold to a woman. And so you have this lady who has destroyed the enemy, and now here's, here's Barak, like, that's oh, supposed to have been me. <laughs> now I can't, I, I don't get credit for that. A lady did it for me with her milk and her tent steak. <laughs> and so wanders off. And do you see how amazing this is? There's a, there's a really important idea here for us to catch. Uh, maybe, maybe the adults will catch this a little more. But hear this. Deborah is a prophetess. She's a judge. She's been anointed by God and is speaking on behalf of God. She's a servant of God. And do you see how consistently throughout all of this, she is pointing the glory to God. She writes a song that takes up the next chapter that every bit of it gives all of the credit to God. She's constantly just saying, no, 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 not me. God, to God be the glory. And as a servant of God who tells Barak what God has said, what does Barak do? He says, I'll go, but only if you go with me. And so who has Barak looked to? Who has he put his hope and his trust, his comfort, his security in? The servant of the Lord as opposed to the Lord. And it does not go well for him. Too often, we can look to someone who is a servant of the Lord instead of the Lord, and that is dangerous. If we elevate leaders of the church, people who are spiritually more mature than us, to a place where only God should be, you will be disappointed, 
and you will be led astray. I've told you this before, but I want you to know, hear me loud and clear, I will disappoint you. Please do not put me in the place of God. Every one of us must hear from God. We must put our trust in God and know that he speaks to us. Don't put your hope in someone who just, you think has a closer relationship to God than you do. We should enjoy and benefit from the gift of others who are further in the faith and imitate their faith and things like that. But again, you cannot put your trust in another leader that should be in God. So chapter five kind of wraps up this story of, of Deborah. And I've told you before, she sings a song. She writes a song with Barak and they sing the song and all the glory is given to God. And, and yet that now concludes with this final statement of chapter five that it says that Israel had peace for 40 years. And so you remember that cycle? There starts with sin. There's sin. There's this turning away from God, missing the mark turning to something else. And so in that sin comes this oppression. There's this hurt. There's, there's consequence for sin. There's now this separation from God. You've walked away from God and now you literally have walked away from God. And so the oppression comes and then there's repentance as you realize, man, I deserve this and I'm sorry for it and I turn back to God and I'm turning away from my sin. And so God, I'm sorry, I'm crying out to God and as God hears that in grace, you don't deserve it, but he hears that and he honors that. And so he brings deliverance He sends someone who's gonna bring you back to God. This judge would come and then the judge would bring peace. You remember that cycle? I said, do you see how that cycle played out through the story? That there was sin, they had turned away from God. There was the oppression. You had 900 chariots telling them what to do, all this stuff. And then there's the repentance. They cry out to God and then there's the deliverance. This Deborah character is raised up as a leader. She tells Barak, hey, go be the leader you're supposed to be. And he's like, I don't know, but... Still, based on what she says, God brings about a victory and delivers them. There is peace. And now, do you see that this is the same cycle that we find ourselves? This is where we find ourselves, every one of us, every human, in this same cycle of being in sin and need of a rescue. And so this means we need this rescuer, we need this person who will come, but it starts with us and repentance. That the rescuer comes because of our repentance that you don't get the rescuer unless you repent. If you do not turn from your sin, confessing that you are a sinner in need of this gracious God and his salvation that only he can offer, then you don't get that rescue. But hear me clearly, the rescuer has come. The rescuer has come just as God was faithful to for for deliverance, for Israel, as they cry out to him, knowing their sin and their oppression, he is faithful to us in every way. See how God was faithful in sending or raising up this deliverer, this person, this Deborah, who would lead them back to him as a prophet, as a judge, someone to bring justice and peace, to speak on behalf of God. And God sent Jesus, the son of God. Jesus has come, the ultimate prophet and judge sent by God to bring us back to himself. Do you see how God would defeat the enemy and bring justice? The threat to God's people was nailed to the ground, decisively defeating the enemy. There was no hope for the enemy anymore. The enemy was literally nailed to the ground. And do you see how God has delivered us and defeated the enemy for us? What stood against us? Our sin was placed on Jesus. And Jesus was nailed to a cross. So that our enemy, the thing that was destroying us, oppressing us, would no longer be against us, but would be dealt with. 
having been nailed to a cross. Why? So that we now could have peace. The thing that robbed us of peace, our sin had been taken away and justice was dealt. There was justice meted out so that on the cross, the very wrath of God that is just, we deserve condemnation. We deserve an eternal punishment that is known as hell. We deserve separation from God, but God loves us. Do you hear me, kids? God loves us so much that he would satisfy his justice by pouring out his wrath on himself on a cross, nailed to a cross, the very wrath of God absorbed by God. God saving us from God so that we would get God. Kids, look at me. You two adults. Do you understand the good news of the gospel is that you deserve punishment. You deserve the wrath of God. You deserve hell. I deserve hell. But the good news is that in grace, God says, Put your faith or your trust in me. I'll be your salvation. I'll be your rescue. You need a rescue, and I am the rescuer. So trust me, he came. Jesus came. He lived a sinless life. He did not sin. He met the mark of God. But then he died the death that we deserve. He was nailed to the cross. Like Cicero was nailed to the ground. He was nailed to a cross as the thing that stood against us. But he did that in love, taking our place so that we could be right with God again, so we could have peace with God again. Look, you should be afraid of hell. Every one of us, we should be afraid of hell. But then we should see the love of God and know that no, it's not just the fear of hell that drives us to salvation, that, that we need this God who can rescue us from that, but it's the beauty of peace with God to be right in a relationship that we were created for in the first place, to enjoy God forever. Now that is the beauty of this. And this is how the cycle stops, that Israel kept repeating the cycle, but our cycle actually ends because the beauty of Jesus being nailed to the cross is Jesus is the son of God. He is the perfect sacrifice to end all sacrifices. So his Forgiveness, his salvation that he offers to us is final so that even as we continue to fail and slip and sin, he is holding us and he's pointing back to, hey, remember what I did? That was good for every bit of it. And so now his kindness leads us to repentance so we don't just see our oppression, our hurt and turn from our sin, but we see the kindness of God and how much he loves us and we turn from our sin. So there's peace in you, God. So I come to you. The enemy has been defeated. God has brought us into peace. Jesus securing peace for us, having atoned for our sins so that we could be righteous before God, but also reconciled to each other. There can be real peace between us. Do you long for justice as you watch what's happened over the last couple weeks in our country? We want things to be made right. And there is someone who is making all things new and right. It is God. So put your hope in him. Bottom line, kids, you might want to write this down. God is our glorious and faithful provider. God is our glorious and faithful provider. Look to him. Look to him to provide what only he can provide, and that is ultimately our salvation. It is our eternal joy to be happy with God forever because he has done something with everything that stood against us. He continues to. 
So skeptic, you don't know if you believe any of this. Seeker, you want to know what is true. Or maybe even stumbling saint, you're just having so much doubt. Will you believe this good news? A Christian, follower of Jesus, who do you need to share this good news with? Let's pray. God, thank you that you love us so much that you would take our place on that cross, Jesus. Thank you. you you're just so amazing. And we, we see the way that in a story like this, you could orchestrate the defeat of an enemy, and yet that pales so much in comparison to the reality of how you have destroyed the ultimate enemy, Satan and our sin. Everything that stood against us and separated us from you, you've dealt with it yourself because you love us like that, and that's just amazing. God, would you help us to see that, to believe that, to trust you in that. I love you. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus.